What does it mean to be a man today? And what is masculinity reclaimed from the toxic paradigm of domination and empire? In an era defined by polarized conflict and existential uncertainty, how can we draw upon ancient and emerging mythologies to navigate the terrain of imaginal possibility? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are once again realigning masculinity with thriving life. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. And this episode is going to delve into the popular phenomenon known as the Barbie film. Now, chances are you've probably seen it by now, or at least chosen to avoid it by now. But with the Oscars coming up uh, very soon in the next few weeks, of which Barbie was nominated for uh, Best Picture, as well as a few other awards, that I felt it was time to return to this film and to discover and uncover the mythic uh, significance that this film represents. And to do so, I've invited on a colleague friend from the UK. She's a writer and psychotherapist, Carly Mountain. Uh, She has a book, Descent and Rising, Women's Stories and the Embodiment of the Anana Myth, which explores women's real experiences of initiation through the underworld and familiarizes us with the process of psycho-spiritual growth for women. Now, I thought she'd be a perfect guest to have on this conversation because she also wrote on her Instagram uh, a few reels uh, last summer when the film came out that compared Barbie's experience or Barbie's journey in the film with the initiation descent myth of Anana. And, of course, what that means for contemporary culture at this time. And so this conversation, I've invited Carly to join me. So we will dive in and I'll share also the themes that I tracked, particularly around Ken's journey and uh, his own, perhaps, um, possibility of a descent journey in the future. And so, enjoy. Well, this conversation is meant to explore Barbie, uh, the film Barbie, which um, perhaps like you, when I first saw it uh, last summer, I mean, I had a field day with the mythic interpretations that uh, were, were very obvious and clear to me. And um, so much so that, uh, uh, you know, I kind of had, I was like, I need to talk to people about this. I need to talk to people about this. But then, you know, some people hadn't seen it. And so I had to wait. And um, mm-hmm. I haven't actually, re- I haven't actually written that much about it. Um, but I've talked about it in different conversations. I actually ended up holding a screening in, um, I'm part of a little community here on Vancouver Island. And I actually brought together a bunch of the the folks in the community who hadn't seen it. Because they're like, Barbie, why would you watch that? I'm like, no, really, you should, you should watch it. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a screening and, and uh, we sort of unpacked it all together after. And I'll just say that, um, yeah, I liked it better the more I saw it, which is interesting because the first viewing, again, all these mythic interpretations swept up and I had, you know, kind of mixed feelings about it. But, uh, and then later when I saw it again, I actually liked it even more. And then, um, you know, began researching a bit. Uh, There's a great article by Alex Biner, which I'll reference a little bit, um, which we can use as a jump off point. But I'd be curious to get your initial impressions of Barbie as well, because I know you've also written about it, but um, yeah, what was, what was, kind of most striking to you when you first saw this film? Mm. Well, similarly to some of the people you spoke to, initially I was like, I'm not going to go and see that. And then I literally had a number of people contacting me going, have you seen this film? You really need to go and see this film. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go and check it out. So I was resistant initially and, um, I was happily surprised 
when I finally arrived with it. And I think what I what I really enjoyed was the complexity, which is what I was not expecting at all. Mm. I thought there was a lot more complexity and a lot more, many more layers in there than I had expected. Um, so that was that was pleasing to me. And yeah, I mean, I think I think Greg Owig's done a really great job in many ways, um, and some of the messages that it brings into that mainstream community that wouldn't ordinarily touch on some of these things in that way. I think she's done a very good job of that. Mm-hmm. Well, just I'll offer it to uh, the conversation as well. Probably some spoiler alerts are in order for anybody who hasn't seen nice. it yet, but uh, we're assuming you've, you've probably seen it by now or perhaps, you know, pause, go see it, come back. Um, but <laughs> even for the folks that, uh, you know, I had a, a friend also see it after I encouraged him to, and he, he thought it was, stupid after he's like, Oh, I don't understand. Why is this, you know, why is this so popular? Um, why does he uh, like it so much? <laughs> and, and so part of this uh, conversation is also meant to help unpack actually why I find it interesting, even for folks yeah. that, uh, again, don't really understand why it's that, you know, compelling, but the fact that it's, uh, I believe it's the highest grossing film of the year, or if not close, uh, I wasn't sure if Oppenheimer eclipsed it. Uh, I believe the last time I looked, Super Mario, you know, was also up there. But it did cross a billion dollars. I remember reading that yes. as a milestone for Barbie, which is again striking to to recognize that a film, uh, sort of quite a feminist utopian film, um, with some layers of complexities about a doll, a popular doll, obviously over the the many decades, uh, somehow hit some kind of note, right? It mm. hit some kind some kind of note, and even. In a time too, when uh, you know uh, this, I use in quotations the sort of wokeness of Hollywood has been heavily critiqued by, I mean, many, and also tends to uh, impact the box office. There's this phrase I came across right in this in the critique saying, you know, go go woke and go broke. That uh, the more mm-hmm. films that Hollywood turns out that are coming from this, um, at least from the folks that are critiquing the sense of a, a sort of strong female leads that are sort of Un- unlikable or or just so uh well gifted in their ta- in their talent or you know unearned uh for talent and to slay the bad guys or you know i'm thinking rings of power for example got quite uh flayed uh the main character in rings of power for just being a kind of uh a, a sort of heroic trope parallel to a man's character but without any of the kind of real struggle or earning of their of their capacities like there's just lots of ways in which hollywood uh, as they try to sort of shovel these, um, I don't know what to call it, equitable ideologies don't tend to do well at the box office, right? Um, Whereas Barbie did quite well. And so obviously there's something different about how they approached it. Um, But I want to read just one line from uh, from the the article I mentioned, um, which is called uh, Castrated Utopias, which is a look at Barbie and Oppenheimer, um, this uh, writer, Alex Beiner. But he said, Barbie is one of the most interesting films to come out of Hollywood in some time. It's a strange phenomenon, a feminist initiation myth that critiques, sometimes with joyful nuance, capitalism and patriarchy, but which paradoxically is designed to sell a corporation's product. Mm. Instead of a film we might read an ideology into, it's a film woven around an existing ideology, feminism. However, the vision of feminism it champions is what makes it particularly interesting. It says uh, it's fun, well-structured, and at times uh, leans towards a kind of meta-modern feminism that seems able to hold the complexity of both social construction and biological difference. 
at other times, it slipped into a more simplistic feminism, and I found myself shaking my head at the narrow depictions of men and masculinity. So, you know, that's that's close to what I felt as well, um, given that there's actually there's no male character in the film who displays any sort of, you know, wisdom or capacity or or nobility. Uh, that's something to note as well. All of them are sort of inept or, um, you know, try to take the power of women or, you know, whatever it is. And we can get into that in a moment. But I want to stick first with this initiation myth, um, which, you know, Alex names there. And you clearly recognize as well that Barbie tracks and mirrors uh, an, an initiation, a descent myth um, that you've spent a lot of time uh, with, of course, written a book about uh, the anonymous. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'd love for you to sketch that first, that myth, uh, that mythic structure. Uh, and then afterwards, we can start to look at, okay, how does that map actually to the Barbie story? Sure, sure. So um, the anonymous is a myth that originated in ancient Sumeria, which is now modern-day Iraq, approximately 5,000 years ago. <clears throat> and it's one of the oldest known tellings of the goddess's descent to the underworld. So Inanna was a triple goddess of sexuality, love, and war. And she chooses to descend to the underworld. So like some of the more modern patriarchal, well-known versions of it, such as Persephone, who's taken to the underworld, Inanna is different. She chooses to go and she goes not to meet with a masculine figure, but to actually meet with her dark sister, Ereshkigal, who is queen of the underworld. And so the initiation is to go down through the seven gates to the underworld. Um, And at each of those seven gates, she is stripped of another identity, her crown, her lapis beads, her breastplate. And the union analyst, Sylvia Brinton Pereira, actually compares these seven gates to the seven chakra points of the body. So it's a deeply embodied mythology. And this initiation really does happen in our bodies, in our lives. You know, the thing that has captivated me about the myth is the way that it is so viscerally felt, even now, all these years later. Um, So when she gets to the bottom of those seven gates and finally meets her sister, she is not met in a loving sisterly reunion. She's actually staked with a meat hook and hung up to rot, essentially. Um, and so meanwhile, above ground, her handmaiden, Ninshaba, is getting increasingly worried and she's banging the drum for her in the assembly places and she goes to the sky gods for help. Um, the sky gods refuse to help. They're like the archetypal masculine that is elevated, rational, does not want to tarry with the dark feminine energies, basically. And so she's about to give up, but then she goes to Enki. And Enki is a sky god who seemingly has been initiated into his own deep feminine. So he is that wise masculine that is missing in the Barbie movie. Um, Certainly in a male form, I think he's embodied by Gloria but that we'll get onto that. And um, Enki sends these two figures. He, he's a gardener. So he pulls out the earth from under his fingernails, sends these two little emissaries down into the underworld. He says, go like flies. You will find Erish Gagal. She will be making birthing sounds. And so they do that. And all they do is empathize with Erish Gagal. You know, she's like, oh, my heart. Oh, my back. And they just reply, oh, your heart. Oh, your back. And after a while, she looks up and says, who are you? You know, she's been exiled for an immeasurable amount of time. 
And she says, I will give you the gift of life. I will give you the food of life. And they say, we only want the corpse of Inanna. And so she gives them the food and water of life. And so begins Inanna's rising. Um, but it's never that simple. So as she begins to rise, she's flanked by these demons from the underworld and they ask for a sacrifice. And she meets along the way her handmaiden and her sons, and she will not sacrifice those. She has a strong no. But then she meets Demuzi, her husband, who is lounging on her throne <laughs> and seemingly has not even noticed that she's gone. And so she knows that he must be sacrificed. And she could do this out of vengeance, which would be to lose consciousness just as she's about to fully integrate, which would be to abort the mission. But actually the final part of the myth is that Gestinana, who is Demuzi's sister, comes in and she brings compassion into the mix. So empathy, sacrifice, and compassion are the keys to rising. And this allows the masculine and feminine to come into a new relationship. So she says, Demuzi will go for six months of the year, then Gestinana will go for six months of the year. So both the masculine and feminine energies will make that descent and come back up with whatever wisdom they need as many times as they need to go through that life cycle. So mm. it's an initiation, initiatory process that I think is really missing in our modern secular society. And um, it's definitely got some echoes inside of the Barbie movie for sure. Mm. Thank you for that. I'm struck by yeah this descent. You know, I'm steeped more in um, certainly tales of like Iron John, uh, yeah. where Bly also uh, elaborates on the katabasis, right? The descent um, to the underworld, the road of ashes, right? There's, there's, there's a parallel dimensionality yes. there to, to the masculine journey. And for Barbie, I think it's fascinating because um, in some ways it also seems to parallel like the psychological loss of innocence, right? Yes. As well, that, that Barbie exists in this, you know, utopian dreamland, nothing's wrong, everything's perfect. And then, of course, she starts to have these thoughts of, um, I mean, death and, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, her body starts to, you know, not be perfect. And this, this kind of catalyzes a kind of um, also a psychological initiation um, mm -hmm. through the loss of innocence, right? That, that the life isn't perfect and that, um, you know, everything isn't just rosy all the time. But um, I'd be curious for you to map a bit more now of these points on the Barbie story. Uh, from the Inanna side, because I know you, you you did a great reel about it as well. That you kind of did some some uh, you know line between a few of these elements. So, but I'd love for you to sketch that before we continue. Yeah, for sure. So, like Inanna, Barbie begins as kind of queen of the upper world. She's like the most popular Barbie, as it were, and then she comes down to earth with a bump. So that exactly what you're naming this thing of the imperfections starting to come up the flat feet is very like coming down to earth with a bump and i think that's really what happens when we go down through those seven gates in real life and mythically um and so she seeks counsel she seeks a witness and that witness in this case it would be ninshaba i kind of feel like weird barbie has got both erish kagal and ninshaba qualities she's kind of a weird hybrid um, but she goes to her for counsel and is essentially told she's got to go to the real world. She's got to be stripped. She's got to go down through those seven gates, which she does. And um, when she arrives in the real world, of course, she experiences misogyny immediately, pretty much within the first few seconds. She's catcalled and all of this sort of stuff. 
and begins to experience grief and difficulty. Um, I think grief is just such a massive part of these initiatory processes. Um, and the Mattel bosses, who for me kind of symbolize the sky gods, they are that elevated masculine in our capitalist culture, that domination dynamic of that wealthy, often white, able-bodied male. And they want her to get back in her box, essentially. Um, and so she has to escape. She has to leave. And she calls in where Enki would normally come in. She actually meets up with Gloria, who is kind of the mother figure in this case, which was interesting to me because mm. in the Anana myth, the mother figure is missing. And some writers believe that that was um, a recognition of the shifts that were happening in Sumerian society, that actually that strong father figure was already becoming dominant. Um, so I find it quite heartening that in a way Enki, I mean, obviously can be embodied by a female or a male, but in this case is, is held somehow by Gloria and, uh, and her daughter and they help her escape. But of course, when she gets back to Barbie land, she finds that she's been usurped like Damuzi does by Ken and, um, that sort of arrogant, elevated mm -hmm. masculine um, and so I think for me, then the final part is, you know, the, the moment where she could treat Ken, like allow the status quo to go back where it was. There is that, that scene in the Barbie movie where Ken and Barbie, where Barbie essentially says, I'm really sorry that I treated you that way. And there is some sort of reconciliation and recognition that actually we need the masculine and feminine to come into a different relationship. It can't just be a matriarchy or a patriarchy. Neither works. So I feel like she did kind of pull that part in as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's that seems to be the cycle. And, of course, Barbie goes back to the real world, but everything in Barbie land, I don't know how that transforms. There seems to be something in there that that didn't quite sit right with me mm. but um the reclaiming of the sexuality when she finishes with the you know i'm going to see my gynecologist i quite liked that that nod to the fact of the the exiling of sexuality and the reclaiming of that um on some level through that little quip mm -hmm. that they <laughs> end on so mm -hmm. um yeah yeah it's, thanks for that yeah. Yeah, a lot of great threads there. It, again, ending on that um, visit to the gynecologist, again, I thought it was fascinating because yeah. um, there's something here actually that uh, Alex wrote as well in his piece, but he said, Barbie acknowledges elements of the postmodern critique. For example, the way that uh, women, he's speaking of, can be molded like dolls into whatever gender roles, social roles that aren't truly who we are, but it nevertheless centers its whole story and ideological frame around the lived experience of women. Uh, but it says it is frequently body focused and comfortable celebrating the shadow side of female experience with Gloria's that's the mother figure you said defining moment yeah. being her recognition that I'm weird and dark and crazy <laughs> right mm. which el elicits some funny kind of knowing chuckles from the women that that watched it um, but she says uh, which gives her renewed agency and energy but most tellingly once Barbie becomes real the first thing she does is go to the gynecologist um, now you link that too to a kind of uh uh, flourishing or, or curiosity leading to almost like an initiation into the sexual 
uh, into her sexual life, right? Which, uh, again, another parallel interesting stand I feel like the film made was that because Barbie is obviously this this archetypal figure for women, yeah. this ar- archetypal projection of women, and that they seem to subtly or not be taking a stand that there is a biological reality uh, of uh, this case of vagina, womb, a vulva, like that that constitutes something significant like the idea that gender is only a social construct um Mm -hmm. itself and this is what alex talks about essentially the kind of box that people paint themselves into or like critiques paint themselves into when they fully divorce any biological influence on gender right Mm -hmm. then then you sort of need to start justifying theory and it sort of it just completely loses touch with again a kind of reality that a lot of people uh would still identify with like Basically, the the uh, sort of the theory and critiques that start to take more precedence than a sort of biological recognition that women and men feel. Like if I said to most people on the street, I'd say, is there a difference between men and women or is it all a social construct? I feel like so many people would say, no, there is a fundamental difference, Uh, even though but they won't have any theorist critiques. Right. Or or sort of postmodern critiques about it. They'll just feel like, yes, it's true. So it's just something that interesting to note that that Barbie seems to take a stand for that still, um, mm. and and at the same time, also understands that gender also is molded by culture and 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 you know looks different in in different social constructs and times. So, but it doesn't fully um, decouple those things. So I thought you know again that was an interesting recognition. Also because sex seems entirely devoid from the film, right? There other than the maybe the like the the cat calls and you said these kind of edgy almost undercurrent threats of male violence or male um you know rape or consumption like that that kind of hovering on the fringes but barbie seems very much like uh, an adolescent girl like who hasn't you know she hasn't come into her sexual awareness right and that's really that that portal at the end or that that initiatory moment of you know i'm here to see the gynecologist like to teach me really you know what is this magical you know, organ mm-hmm. that I have that that is the gateway to pleasure and procreation and all these things. Like she's um, completely devoid of that understanding in her adolescence through the film. Mm-hmm. And there is that scene where Ken's like, "Oh, can I stay over?" And she's like, "Why?" He's like, "I don't know." Exactly. And they yeah, yeah. <laughs> make humorous kind of interchange of like, "Well, we don't have any parts to do anything with." It's almost like. And for me, actually, that's a really interesting commentary about how we actually treat our bodies and the lack of sex education and the lack of holding of that initiation in our culture, which I think is real and present, actually, even though there's a joke about it in the film. The fact that we have these dolls that have been created without the fundamental body parts, like what is that, what message is that giving to our children? Mm. And so when we go through these initiations in real life, when we move into puberty and into the sort of discovery of sexuality, you know, Inanna as the goddess of sexuality, she is holding that initiatory process, be that whichever life stage it is, it could be for women also perimenopause into menopause. I think a lot of the women I've worked with really identify with it there, but certainly into adolescence. And yeah, you know, we are really lacking in, in the holding of the of of that rite of passage and what fills in the blank you know mm-hmm. what comes mm-hmm. in to to take on that that piece but yeah i also really appreciate what you're bringing around 
the bio, biological reality part because I feel like the reason I love myth is because it really speaks to our embodied primal energetic experiences in life. And for, I can only speak for myself, but also I've worked with a lot of people with this myth now. I can, you know, it's fundamentally rooted in our physical experience. And I find that when it gets too academic and too elevated, we've gone into that sky god territory, right? Of like, mm. I think last time I spoke to you, you talked about the citadel of the mind. And I really love that it stayed with me. Mm. You know, surely we need to get our flat feet back down on the earth and hold the complexity of the cultural impact of gender, but also not override or negate mm -hmm. our physical experience and reality and our fundamental beautiful differences. Mm -hmm. Well, this brings me then to, um, I would say part of the ideology of the film, which isn't necessarily explicit, but also tracks through, I would say the last few decades of um, a sort of mythic uh, interpretation, which is really the advent of patriarchy, right? Why did, why did, where did patriarchy come from, right? And, and I'm not exhaustively uh, researched on this, but my understanding is there's some threads that speak about uh, that patriarchy emerged uh, essentially as the um, a sort of fundamental sense of lack of the sexual power of women by men. Mm -hmm that men have a um, understanding the great depth and, and potency of female sexuality, that it, it is intimidating. This is something that was mirrored in the film, The Village of Lovers, which uh, you know we spoke with uh, the, the community in Portugal called Tamara, which I spent many years at. And the film um, is now out, uh, or we just did a global premiere, yeah, which you also mm -hmm. named, you saw. And yeah. yeah, thank you. And Benjamin, who's the co-founder of the Love School in the community, he actually says in the film, and we put it in there specifically, because he says, um, that ultimately patriarchies come from an inferiority complex complex with the sexual power of the woman. And yeah. that to me was very clearly mirrored again in a sort of adolescent way when Ken, I mean, they even, they even do it right in the marketing of the film, right? They say, you know, she's, she's Barbie and he's just Ken, right? Like yes. as in he's just sort of, he exists in orientation to Barbie and he's nothing without Barbie. And you might say um, this is very much a, a kind of unconscious look to the mother Right, like Ken is very much in an adolescent relationship to the feminine as everything, right? Mm -hmm. The source of everything, the sense of meaning, the sense of, of purpose and nourishment, and you know he comes and, and again, it's, it's there's a shy adolescent nature to it. Like you said, you know, he's like, hey, can I come over tonight, Barbie? And uh, he doesn't seem to he doesn't seem to have a a sort of you know sexualized intent. In fact, yeah, when they even oh. say like, what will you do? He's like, I don't know. Um, but there's a, <laughs> but there's a longing to be close to her, right? That's yes. the thing. And and there's a longing to be close to close to the feminine source is what I would say, and so his whole journey of essentially being rejected by oh. Barbie, right? Uh, you could almost say a kind of adolescent um, sexual rejection of at least access to the feminine source puts him off now on a journey where he you know ends up in the real quote real world, which is run by patriarchy. And the thing that's maybe not said or maybe said with some subtlety is. It's like, oh, men are in control here, but they're in control of women. They're, they're in control of the feminine, right? They can right. get it whenever they want, right? Like that kind of, that's the undercurrent. And so for him, he's like, oh my God, this is great, right? This, this means I don't have to feel rejected anymore if I can only import this uh, society into Barbie land, 
which he does, right? He comes back and he has, he's all bravado and, uh, you know, Mojo Dojo, Casa House and all that stuff, you know, uh, Brewski, Beer Me, you know, everything. And, uh, yeah. and that to me is a very clear um, parallel to this sense that, look, it's like we don't have to, we as an, um, an adolescent relationship of inferiority that men overcompensate for uh, looks like the need to control out of the fear of essentially feeling inadequate. Right. And right. so that that was just fascinating for me to see that mirrored so clearly. I don't know if Greta you know, or your husband, you know, the writers were maybe that versed in that or if it was simply the mimetic unconscious, um, you know, that that was sort of bubbling up, probably a combination of both. Um, but that, that, that to me was very clearly mapped there. And so the question that I have, of course, is, you know, by the end of the film, when Ken sort of, you know, says, well, I thought patriarchy was actually about horses and it's not as much about horses as I wanted. Uh, but he sort of gives up, he gives up the facade, right? That he's really in charge and he's better than her. And so it's just clearly a sense of his own um, inability to feel, you know, the grief and the sadness of rejection of which mm. Barbie, Barbie finally acknowledges, right? And says, oh my God, like, wow, I didn't really know how bad you felt by, you know, me basically saying, you know, I'm me and the girls tonight. Yeah. And so, so it's interesting that, you know, again, for that, that moment for me, where he comes to that place of, you know, humorously captured as I am Knuff, right? I'm Knuff. I'm Knuff. Uh, and the Kens and the men, right? They're like, wow, we are enough. Like that's the start really of the initiatory journey for men, mm. right? Which is which is a lot of the work I do with men and essentially uh, re resourcing the access to that feminine well within and through their own, uh, you know, living archetypal relationship to those elements, both within and the goddess without. And so for me, right, if I was going to write the next film uh, or say, you know, Ken's initiation, uh, mm. which is something I may wonder about in the future and, and possibly sketch out. But there is there is a whole journey there. Right. And rather than kind of leaving uh, a kind of, well, we made it now to a sort of where we were, but with a little more shared understanding of each other. Because it's very clear that there is a there is a whole other descent journey that Ken needs to go on, um, just as Barbie is finding, you know, again, her new um, sort of maturity uh, that includes complexity, the, like the understanding of death, uh, you know, rejection, like the composition of the body, decomposition of the body, like all these elements coming mm. to the surface. So just wanted to lay out a few of those things there and I'm curious what stirs for you. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. I think what comes in for me is exactly those pieces about rising, the empathy that comes in when Barbie recognizes and witnesses Ken's grief and loss that he's been avoiding through adopting that patriarchal kind of, I'm going to dominate you because you're rejecting me and I'll avoid my feelings and just take and essentially perpetrate instead, which I think plays out so often inside of our culture, uh, as we know. But also I love what you're pointing to in the men's work of finding that feminine source within. And I feel like that's mapped inside the anonymous with the presence of Geshtinana, who is Demuzi's sister. So it's like, you know, the brotherhood and sisterhood that exists inside of our own beingness that we don't always have to look for it from the outside and compassion the way, you know, I am enough, that compassion coming in in order to be able to forage for that inside yourself and dare to descend, to dare to unlayer all of the stuff inside of that that you need to dig to do in that 
Road of Ashes work or what have you in the descent journey. So, yeah, I think there's so much inside of it. And, you know, men really, we really need men to be doing this work. It can't be all women doing it or all men doing it or whatever. You know, we need to be working together inside of it. So I would love to see that second movie and see, Hmm. you know, the mapping of that, what that looks like and what's possible inside of it. Because, I mean, we're crying out for it. So... Hmm. Um, well, another thread I want to name too is the uh, the arc of the heroine's journey, which is something that um, I think Sharon Blackie, who I spoke to about it, um, but for me, they they there are sort of fundamental differences also. Which of course, the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell is the sort of famous architecture of that kind of thing. Um, but the heroine's journey seems to have certain qualities of uh, that I found in the film with with Barbie, which is that. Ultimately, it's not about the lone hero, you know, triumphing over, you know, some some enemy that is ultimate evil. That, mm. in fact, with Barbie, you can see how she awakens to her role in essentially partnering with all the other women, right? Like yeah. there's there's a certain sense of you know through her own descent journey and then the return and the shift of consciousness that then she can essentially invite collaboration, right? That mm. it's not it's not her out there alone you know, slaying the dragon or whatever that is. And that to me also was telling that, uh, that there's this invitation into collaboration with women um, yes. as the outcome, again, rather than her accruing the, the uh, I don't know, the, the fundamental sense of achievement uh, on her own, right? Which is, that seems to be much more of a adolescent male trait of a kind of, again, the heroic individual. And I could say more about that, but I'm just curious for you to track, were you tracking that as well? Yeah, I was tracking that. And I also track it in Gloria's relationship with her daughter that is not good. And yet, as they move, go on this mission together to help Barbie, how that mother wound aspect that you were pointing to with Ken, I think that mother wound aspect's very much alive inside of Gloria and her daughter's relationship. And by the end, there is some healing that's happened there and some solidarity that's come in as her daughter witnesses the mother in a more um, compassionate way again and actually sees the mother rather than just being, you know, separated from the mother. And I think there's something interesting as well in the beginning of the film when the dolls are being smashed, you know, the dolls that are just the babies that the, the young girls were encouraged to just mother these dolls and they're all of a sudden smashing these dolls, getting obliterating the mother role and looking towards this other figure of the feminine and there's a split there as well which I find really fascinating that has really been put onto women where it's like I can either reject the mother and be this kind of sexually alluring young perpetually in summer um, manifestation of the feminine or I can be a mother and then I'm not sexual and I'm kind of thrown under the bus (laughs) to an extent it's like, how do we actually allow our complexity inside of our femininity as well? And mm. I think, you know, in terms of Barbie, the fact that even the doll itself has been proven to be a physical impossible, you know, she would have had to crawl rather than walk. She is the idealized feminine that's actually a physical impossibility for real women to actually live up to and that capitalist culture really thrives on. So which, which sets women against women and causes this wound, this split that Inanna and Erishka are caught in, 
in their separation. So mm-hmm. Hmm. there's so there's so many layers inside of this. I also found it interesting that uh, and Alex uh, Biner in his article too named this sort of early on. He said, I, I had the feeling that it wasn't made for me, <laughs> right? As in, mm-hmm. uh, a man, yes. uh, and, and he was able to actually put aside a sense of like, why aren't they speaking to me? To be like, oh, this is actually not for me, but I can observe faithfully and kind of, you know, receive on its terms of what it's actually, who it's speaking to and why. And I found that very helpful, too, because it's very clearly, I think, too, speaking to women and the experience of women. And that is really mirrored, of course, in the somewhat famous speech now in the scene that Gloria gives, which is in some sense, right, is the crescendo of the entire film, which is to reveal the impossibility to live this idealized version of a woman in patriarchal culture um, that that she sort of gives testimony to. Right. And, and it's a sort of it's a sort of hallelujah moment. Right. For for I mean, generally the women in the in this theater, you know, I felt that, too. There was just like, woo, right. Like this. <laughs> yeah, finally, feeling. somebody's saying it and, and I feel seen. You know, I could see the women feeling that. And then for the men as well, at least perhaps a, a sense of being like, wow, I had no idea. Right. Like a certain a, a certain a tragedy of that. They, how do you have no idea? But a lot of men being like, oh, that's how it feels like to be a woman in patriarchal culture. Like, hopefully that's also what was impacting them as well, right? The ability to say, oh, that doesn't speak to me, but more like, oh, that's their experience so often for for women. Uh, And that that was actually a very telling moment. Um, Mm. So in that sense, the absence of like strong male characters or something is, is, I mean, it's totally understandable because, again, it's, it's operating on a very particular way, speaking to and to make visible very particular um, complexities in the experience of uh, being a woman, um, like you said, and and kind of therefore has to amplify and kind of characterize the men. So the men can almost see, like, again, patriarchy as like, oh, isn't it about horses? Like like a kind of caricaturizing of, of the um, simplistic, but, the, but still very powerful kind of undercurrents that are operating within you know men and women relations um that mm. again without them without the moments being amplified to a kind of yes yeah, almost a silly dimension or even like the kens all fighting each other with like you know sports equipment and you know things like that 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 you know again it's not a leap to then see war actually on scale happening again right now yeah. all over the world that that yeah. that kind of impulse of competition but with real weapons again is is very much what is happening right all over the world even though even though the impulse is is again the same the same impulse of you know competition power over so i i appreciate that in the sense that required me in a way as a man also to kind of step aside and say okay you know this isn't quote speaking to me but it asked me to pay attention to be like can you really attune to the experience actually that so many women carry in this culture. Mm. And this is a really interesting point because um, so oftentimes I feel I feel like this has been the experience of women for most of our lives, that most of the stories in mainstream culture aren't speaking to us. Most of the medical research doesn't speak to us. Most of da-da-da-da-da and so on. And so it's really interesting to see men's response when they do go to a film that isn't speaking to them and all of a sudden it's like oh this is not for me it's like well hang about (laughs) we've been living in this for a really long time so I get it and I think it really is speaking to you guys for all the reasons that you are so 
eloquently pointing out that actually it really is speaking to men and is really highlighting, you know, my husband came to watch the film with myself and my daughters and he was moved to tears more times through it than I am. And he was like, all my male friends need to see this film because he was really impacted as a father of two teenage girls he was really impacted by it and is constantly really impacted by this dynamic that goes on in patriarchal dominator misogynist society. So I, I really, um, I like to shake up the idea that just because it isn't speaking to men direct as the central point that it isn't speaking to men, I feel like it is a film for men. Mm. And I'm so glad that it, that men have watched it and are paying attention to it. As you say, mm. even though we're not the center of it, it's asking us to pay attention and I think if any real shifts are going to happen, that needs to be the case. And actually, some men contacted me when I wrote my book and said, you know, it, this is women's stories and the embodiment of the anonymous. Would, but could I read it? I'd be interested. I'm like, yes, please read it. And my husband read it and has referred it on to some of his friends. And yeah, I feel like mm -hmm. we need to understand each other. Um, mm -hmm. Surely these films are an invitation to that new mm. relationship, I hope. Mm. But it is an intriguing one that, that it often switches men off when the, the central strong male character's not there. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I'll say too that I, I mean, I love the track that Billie Eilish did for yes, uh, also, right, the, the somewhat um, existential moment of the film. I think it's called What Was I Made For? Yes. And uh, I mean, the layers on that are just too good. Um, the music video itself, which you might have seen, right, is very, it's very simple, which she also came up with a concept for. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's just a tracking shot of her kind of in this, you know, very almost adolescent um, 50s style outfit. And she has a table with these little outfits um, of herself as an artist, as Billie Eilish, mm -hmm. the artist, different outfits that she's worn and, and became somewhat iconic in her different music videos, you know, over mm -hmm. the last, I mean, she's not, she's not that old, but maybe the last yeah. five or six years. Uh, and she's kind of like playing with these different doll outfits that are the doll of her artist persona. Um, and like there's storms that come in and they kind of like shake the table and kind of drench her. And she's still trying to hold this like persona of like, wait, what, what outfit do I wear today? Like, how do I perform being a woman, being an mm -hmm. artist? And, yeah. and it's very powerful again for someone as well who's, you know, relatively young to track that. And again, the track itself saying, what was I made for? Right. And again, speaks to, I mean, on the one hand, the doll, the doll coming to recognition of it, it's, its own sense of beingness and, and soul in a way, right? Uh, doll Barbie asking the question. But then, of course, um, that again, that, that transitionary moment of adolescence in the, I imagine, of a young girl, right, who kind of comes into that awareness of, of like both what does it all mean and like why am I here? You know, what was I made for in a sense of, you know, I see almost, again, shaking off or dissolving the the performative conditioning that comes when you're in a society that, you know, generates this need to perform. Yes. Um, and so it's a very vulnerable and beautifully crafted moment, I think, mm -hmm. both in the film and in the track itself that, uh, yeah, I'll just say I was touched by. Mm, I haven't seen that. I'll definitely look it up. But I, I feel like, yeah, the performative aspect certainly with the pornification of our culture, the way that we are going back to the sexuality thread here, the way we're encouraged to perform 
our way into our sexual lives when we start coming into contact with another, with a lover. Mm. And um, it makes me think again of the Ken piece that you were pulling in earlier of the way that he adopts this performative kind of dominator, kind of cocksure, classic, arrogant, patriarchal man as a performative way of taking control of his sexuality rather than going into the vulnerability and connection and relationship of it, which would be that more erotic thread rather than the performativity kind of mm. externalization of an image. And um, mm. isn't it so powerful when we can have imagery in films that, or in music videos or whatever that really touch into I think that's why I love creativity and that's what I so loved about The Village of Lovers, the way that the creativity of the filmmaking itself was embodying something about what they're doing inside of the work, inside of Tamara. You know, it's that thread that's in all of us and it feels like that's what gets buried in these layers of conditioning that essentially the anonymous mm. is telling us, can you shed that? and come back to that erotic aliveness that you are and have always been. And of course, a doll is not that, is it? It's, it is a piece of plastic. Mm. <laughs> it's not got that spirit inside of it. So, mm. Well, you, yeah. I'm glad you brought up the Village of Lovers again too, because um, I feel like this could be the last uh, inquiry we have on the conversation. Yeah. But um, one of the things that was absent in the film again not surprisingly but not that it quote knew that it was absent is there was no village mm. right and and i say that with this understanding that uh, you know i've been steeped in for the last decade or so um with a particular teacher stephen jenkinson who's you know said he has this phrase which is so haunting in a way but he says you know so much of what we understand as a like um, pathologized behavior and dysfunction and um essentially yeah, the, the, a lot of the broken ways of relating, not just in relationship in terms of romantic partnership, but essentially just how we live as, as a modern culture is all happening within the crater of the loss of village. Mm. So meaning it's like, it's already happened, but, and, but we just, you know, we're kind of existing and we're like, Oh, what a, what a wide Valley that we're in. Oh, it's just always been this way. But like, that's the meteor that hit and decimated what was there, the cultural societal ecosystem that so many of us ancestrally lived in and now are living without, but not knowing that we're living without it, right? So, um, and I say that too, because so in the film, there's no village, meaning there's no uh, culturally endorsed held ways of initiating the youth, the adolescent consciousness, you know, of, the, of both men and women to hold um, and guide through these necessary thresholds, right? These necessary pathways. And this is where the contrast with something like, um, of course, Tamara and the Village of Lovers that we really tried to depict in the film uh, was what does it feel like to be in a rewoven tapestry of, of villaging? And there's an um, incredibly powerful story in the film, of course, that many have pointed to, which is we captured the, uh, the, the story that one woman in the community who had grown up from, you know, yeah. about two yeah, about two to when we interviewed her, she was about 18 and her name is Naila. And she is the daughter of the Benjamin, who I mentioned earlier. And um, she talks about her first sexual experience with another person, 
right? Yes. And how, how that was held, you know, there was a whole approach of, yeah, the elders, you know, being with her through that process, you know, hearing the questions she has, the curiosities. And eventually yeah. when it became time, she immediately, you know, emailed her her parents and said, hey, you know, it's my first time, dad, mom, you know, and of course, that's an outrageous thing that most youth in, you know, the dominant culture would be like, I would never do that. But yeah. she, inv she invited the whole village basically to come to celebrate this threshold with yes. her at the Temple of Love. The way she says it is so good, right? She's like, I wanted a snack bar and people to read poetry to each other. And, you know, it's just Damn. so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And, and ultimately, when the moment came of the actual uh, explore exploration, they, you know, it was private, but held within the, the Temple of Love. And uh, she so beautifully says this line, right? After a few hours, they took all the time they needed, you know, in their private space. And then when they came out, the community was still there, still you know, there. still holding the space, you know, still being present to, hey, you know, she says, you know, they asked me how it was. And I said, I couldn't speak. But <laughs> she's just just the fact that they they were kind of there and holding such a beautiful ceremonial container. And the, the line that, again, just detonates so many people is she says at the final, she says, there was no shame. Yeah. Right. There was no shame because that right there is the consequence when you don't have these kinds of thresholds and a kind of mature um, mentorship and holding of sexuality of, of this particular threshold into the, into an erotic life with others. Um, the absence of that is what most of us live, which is that it's usually hidden, sloppy, traumatizing, um, shameful, right? And, uh, and that's, that's the norm for, for so many. And how devastating is that in, moving into adult life when like that's the imprint right as you enter from adolescent into your sexual beinghood and it's no wonder of course we have all the dysfunction and you know ongoing trauma and the rest so the absence of village actually as the gone goneness right was the sort of last missing piece that i recognized but only because of my time being embedded in uh, a stitched back together fabric of that mm. understanding and um, and that's really what we've tried to communicate, you know, of course, through the film. Mm, yeah, which I think is done beautifully. And I was so moved by that part as well. And I find it so interesting when working with shame that the etymology of the word shame means to cover over. And I think mm. what was illustrated so beautifully inside of the the initiation that she called in for herself calling the community in, calling in those ninshabas and those enkis of support. Mm. Um, it, would, it was not covered over. Nothing needed to be covered over. And, and how beautiful to be, you know, that, that sense of wanting your elders near and then not wanting them to disappear as well when you come into your maturity and... And the fact they were still there when they emerged, I just found that really, prof it was a really profound sense of not being abandoned. Like the mm -hmm. sky gods abandon Inanna. As soon as she descends down to go to her own wisdom, Eve eats the apple and she gets cast out the Garden of Eden. It's this constant story of as soon as you eat the fruit of your own eroticism, your own self-knowledge, mm -hmm. you will be cast out and exiled. And what a beautiful um contrast the village of lovers really showed what's possible if that is not the narrative that plays out um mm. i feel like you did such a beautiful job of that i was really moved by it and mm. 
and it's really difficult to do it. Even if, you know, you're trying to, you know, the way we're raising our kids, we're really, we really have a lot of open dialogue around all aspects of life. And yet the cultural narrative, the village, <laughs> the dysfunctional village, it's not a village, as you say, because it's not, it's not able to hold these rites of passage. You end up kind of in this juxtaposition sort of relationship. And it's really difficult to find out how to. Hmm weave that gap in this time so I feel like it was really beautiful that your film and that their community is foraging for as you say that reweaving of what does a village what can a village look like and what's the relationship with the earth I think that's um, mm. what really rubbed against me in terms of the Barbie movie was this thing of okay all these brilliant narratives are being brought up and yet this is a film about a plastic doll that is going to sell exponential way more it's it's kind of though barbary has been reappropriated by this storytelling feminism has also been appropriated for that domination kind of machine of patriarchal filmmaking and mm -hmm. it's so complex isn't it because yeah, we're feeding the thing that, and that's the one of the ways that the domination dynamic continues, isn't it? By appropriating these up and coming uprisings and taking them mm -hmm. for their own. So I have really mixed feelings about that, but yeah, hopefully it's possible to reweave, as you, as you say, some sort of village. I don't know how we do it. It's mm. very difficult to do it. <laughs> Well, that's interesting too. Yeah, your last point there of of um, you know, is this an example of uh, feminism or, or ancient myth being co opted by the capitalist machine? Yeah. Is it you know? Sometimes I play the opposite. Is it that the myth has has jumped aboard the capitalist <laughs> machine to deploy itself memetically with you know the mm. widest audience possible? I sometimes play with that, right? Because then I'm like, huh, interesting. Like, does because myths, of course, have agency. You know, they have their their own trickster ways and um, who's, you know, who's writing who? I mean, that's a question yeah. I'm curious about, but we'll find out, uh, we'll find out at least for the Oscars, which, you know, I don't normally turn into the Oscars, but I felt this would be an occasion given that Barbie was nominated for, I believe, Best Picture, um, Gloria, the, uh, the the mother figure we've named, she was named uh, as Best Supporting Actress, I believe, uh, but Greta and um, Margot Robbie were not um, given no, any Ryan nomination. Gosling. So but Ken was, but, but yeah, Ken was, was. Ken's which up is there. A, again, yeah. And of course the internet, you know, erupted into, this is exactly what the film's about. Ken gets the nomination Barbie doesn't. And, you know, and then others are saying, well, you know, I mean, they don't, they, they, the comparisons are between the other actors in that category, not, you know, for the thing itself. Like, okay, I get it. But it was just an interesting example. It felt like of, uh, that some kind of, you know, Ken get the spotlight, but Greta and, Margot not. I thought for Ken, you know, not a stretch for Ryan Gosling. You know, he, he did good. He was great. But as far as an acting, you know, uh, achievement, I feel like, you know, Ryan, he's 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 amazing actually in other films. Whereas uh, Margot, I really liked actually in the film. I thought she did a beautiful, yeah. complex job with that character. Um, and, and, you know, in other films too, she's obviously quite accomplished. So, um, yes. and then for Greta to do what she did as well, you know, with, and, and her husband, you know, I, I, they might've even got a writing credit actually. Um, but just, she didn't get directing credit, but I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, you know, but we'll see what happens. And, uh, hopefully folks though, who are either seeing the film 
and listen to this now are like, oh, that's what's going on below the surface. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe mm-hmm. hopefully this can be an interesting um, take on things for them. And for those that maybe haven't seen it yet are like, what's all the fuss about? Maybe have a listen to this and then have a look and uh, see, you know, there's more. Sure. There was always more than what's on the surface. Yeah, and I love the fact, you know, we need more female directors. And so I think that Greta Gerwig really did do a great job in in terms of, you know, paving that way for hopefully some more female directors to come up through the ranks in Hollywood. I would love to see that happen too. Mm. Well, we'll see. Carly, we'll thanks see. so much for taking time today to talk thanks about this. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and share on your social media. Once again, you're also invited to find The Mythic Masculine on Substack. You'll be able to subscribe to forthcoming episodes as well as become a paid supporter. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to learn more. I'm just kidding. Anywhere else I'd be dead Is it my destiny to live and die a life of blonde fragility? I'm just Ken Where I see love, she sees a friend What will it take for her to see the man behind the tent and fight for me? Yeah.